0: Metänina tani na diyalani na ude me south south globalization podcast hosted by Wolfson college and the oxford africa society the south south globalization podcast brings you stories of movements of people capital and ideas between communities of the global south the stories will show how knowledge is produced and exchanged along routes that do not necessarily intersect with or need the mediation of the west the podcast will capture a plurality of voices experiences, and geographies. My name is Simpiwe Laura Stewart. I was born and raised in the kingdom of Eswatini, and I'm currently a PhD student in the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Oxford. My guest today is Dr. Bani Gill, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Peak Urban Program. Bani completed her PhD at the University of Copenhagen in September 2019. Situated at the intersection of anthropology, migration studies, and South Asia studies, her doctoral dissertation explored contemporary practices of transnational mobility from West Africa to Delhi, India, with a particular focus on frameworks of migrant illegality, informal entrepreneurship, racialization, and the violence of law and bureaucracy from a global South perspective. She also currently serves as executive committee member of the Emerging Scholars and Practitioners on Migration Issues Network, ESPMI, and is on the editorial team of Refugee Review. Welcome, Bani. Thanks, Impewe, it's lovely to be here, thanks. Great, so my first question is really about your doctoral research, which sort of kicks off the conversation for today, which of course is about the politics of hair. Can you talk to us a bit about your PhD? What was the topic? How did you come to choose it? And what, uh, if you can, were the main findings of your study?
1: Yes, of course. So my PhD and my current postdoctoral work is an ethnographic exploration of contemporary patterns of transnational mobility between the African continent and India, and is situated in Delhi, a city I grew up in. Now, of course, the history of Africans in India dates back several centuries and includes the forced movement of Africans to South Asia through the Indian Ocean slave trade circuits. But in recent years, there has been an increasing number of migrants from various African countries making their way to urban centers across India for reasons of trade, asylum, education and healthcare. I was curious about these mobility trajectories and the everyday experiences of the state and society that they entailed, especially in a context like India, where blackness, in its intersection with caste hierarchies, remains heavily stigmatized. So one of the reasons I chose this topic was that during my master's degree I'd spent a year in Uganda and I was quite surprised by the strength of the Indian diaspora there and the imaginaries of India that circulated. And that really made me realize that there is far less knowledge about Africans in India, despite our shared histories of colonialism and British imperialism, and I wanted to learn more about the kinds of opportunities and frictions that emerge from contemporary Africa-India entanglements. So I found that these new mobility trends, and I say new with these inverted commas because of course there are longer histories there, but these new kinds of trends reflect the diversification and commercialization of migration routes spurred by increasingly restrictive uh, immigration regimes of the global north, through which new destinations have started to emerge as mobility options, such as India and of course China. So in my work, I engaged primarily with West African and mostly Igbo Nigerians who self identified as business people. Several participated in small scale informal transnational trade, buying goods such as electronics, garments, and hair, and sending them to the African continent for further retail, or in service provision such as restaurants and hairstyling in Delhi. The mobility trajectories of several such migrants are flexible and temporary, in contrast to sedentaristic understandings of migration in terms of permanent settlement but their paperwork status may normatively be termed irregular in state registers. So there is thus this inherent disjunct in how people view themselves as doing business and how society kind of stigmatizes them on account of anti-black racism and how the state perceives them as quote unquote, illegal. So my PhD research specifically looked into these notions of migrant illegality in their intersection with race and racialization frameworks in non-white global South contexts, such as India. I conducted extensive ethnographic fieldwork and interviews with migrants from West Africa, primarily from Nigeria, as well as with Indian neighbours, landlords, property brokers, traders and vendors, policemen and lawyers located in Delhi. I found that the recurrent imaginings of migrants from the African continent as quote, illegal, was anchored not only in the fact of formal legal status, but also on socio-cultural codes that draw upon local perceptions of difference as crafted within and through the context of multi-layered histories and contemporary urban upheavals. In this way, notions of migrant illegality draw on much more than the law and concretize in the everyday through affects, experiences, practices and relations embedded in the spatially derived socio-cultural economies of difference and cohabitation that have come to characterize the modern metropolis of Delhi. At the same time, I also found that these notions of illegality as a discursive terrain, as a set of relations and practices, also entail a dynamism that both preclude and generate opportunity in a multitude of ways. For the indeterminacy of illegality is also what allows for African migrants to creatively self-fashion themselves as entrepreneurial subjects, through which livelihoods are materialized and negotiations with political and social authority in India rendered tangible. As I followed my interlocutors in their daily lives, Hair and the business in hair and the politics of hair became one of the central themes through which I mapped contemporary Africa-India relations.
0: So interesting those ideas of race, caste, um, you know, racialization, illegality, and the sort of discourses around south-south migration um, that came to the fore in your research. I'm I'm really interested in that bit about the politics of hair. So. We spoke earlier and you mentioned how many of the people you spoke to travel to India to get somehow engaged in this business around hair that's, that's really taken off in the past several years, especially as many uh, people racialized as Black, especially women racialized as Black, gravitate towards Indian hair for their extensions and, and other hair styling. Can you talk about what you found specifically about hair?
1: So let me start with just first explaining why hair. I get this question a lot that why hair and what does hair mean for me? What does it kind of signify? Um, so for me, hair is a fascinating topic through which to make sense of uh, kind of several cultural phenomena ongoing in society. Hair as organic matter produced by the human body informs mean making as a bo- sociocultural bodily signifier. Hair is embedded in multiple representations of the self, uh, is a signifier of many attributes such as age, gender, class, generation, and so on. But once disembodied, human hair is also a highly globalized and specialized commodity used for weaves, extensions, wigs by people across the globe. So in this regard, the value of hair remains multifarious, uh, as embedded in personal histories, varied local cosmologies, as well as local capitalist flows. Hair then helps us understand the material practices of globalization and the myriad entanglements it generates. So as a master's student in Uganda, I was quite surprised when people would ask me about the hair trade in India. And at the time I was kind of oblivious to this burgeoning business in hair and hadn't quite realized how much the hair trade is worth. Now, of course, I know that India tops the market in the supply of hair and that hair weaves can range in price from $20 to thousands of dollars, depending on the length and the style. The Venkateshra temple of Tirumala in Andhra Pradesh in India, that's India's largest source of human hair where every day thousands of men, women and children undergo tonsuring as a form of material and spiritual offering. So the massive quantity of hair that the temple receives has prompted it to monetize this offering, and it's now sold in online auctions, bringing in millions of dollars each year. Apart from this, hair in India is also collected from rural villages, where people often barter the hair caught up in their combs for petty goods or small sums of cash. In fact, comb hair is collected across a range of localities and occupational contexts in India, from clippings collected in beauty salons to loose hair that is rescued from drain pipes by manual scavengers. The trade in hair significantly reworks notions of waste and of value. But practices related to hair care and styling are not a modern phenomena only, nor are they linked only to the business of aesthetics, since hair is innately associated with human corporality. Now, because of its close relation with the human body, hair remains extremely personal and political for a diverse range of communities. Growing up in Delhi, it is through hair and the turban that several of my family members wore that I came to understand and make sense of my own identity as a minority Sikh in contemporary India. One of my earlier research projects focused on the 1984 anti-Sikh pogrom in Delhi, and one of the enduring legacies of trauma that haunted the community was the dilemma for Sikh boys and Sikh men to cut off their hair so that they could pass as Hindus amidst the violence. Long hair or the wearing of the turban for Sikh men and women is a marker of identity as racialized bodies within and beyond India. Hair is thus a visible cultural artifact of identity, belief and belonging and in this way is also extremely political.
0: Absolutely, I really resonate with that idea of you know hair both as this sort of commodified um, thing, but also as something that's very much imbued with or carries sort of history and cultural significance. Uh, You know, Vogue, I think it was, wrote an article in 2019 on detangling the politics of hair. And the cover image of that article is, you know, a, a white woman and the substantive parts of the article talk about 1980s punks with spiked mohawks, Um, who spearheaded, according to Vogue, the anti-establishment aesthetic. Um, And they talk about, you know, the fashion designer Vivian Westwood and how she shaved off her hair to draw awareness to climate change. But it doesn't really get at the substance of that question of who can and can't show their hair which is a topic right at the intersection of race and class. It's also very gendered, obviously, and so for Black and Brown women, like you've said, with you know your personal history as a minority chic, um, women, you know, Black and Brown women, hair and politics is almost intractable. Uh, so you know we can think of, especially for me as a Black woman, I can think of people uh, like Angela Davis and the use of the afro in the Black consciousness and Black civil rights movements. Um, there's a, an Iranian um, <clears throat> human rights lawyer, Nazreen Sotaude, who went to jail for not wearing a or refusing really to wear a hijab. And you know, young people in South Africa, uh, Zuleika Patel is a really wonderful, remarkable, really young activist who, at I think the age of 12 or 13, was involved in a series of protests at her high school because they try to ban um, natural black hair. Can you, um, can you maybe speak about, perhaps speak more about that personal history and the histories that you were engaging with in that first research project with uh, minority sheikhs?
1: Um, So that project was more about the enduring legacies and the trauma and the memories of the violence that had occurred during 1984 in Delhi. And I was engaging mostly with women who had been widowed during the course of those events. I think that's a very, very difficult uh, time in Indian history to speak about. Also in relation to what is happening in India today, where once again, we have the rise of right-wing Hindu. And that has again brought to the fore how vulnerable minorities really are in India. But anyway, to go back to that time, a lot of these women sometimes spoke about how the only way they could have saved their husbands was by getting them to cut their hair off. And then a lot of times the men refused to cut their hair off. And then for younger boys, because the women could control them and their hair, they would forcibly cut their hair off. So that particular instance really stood out for me to say that, you know, that that hair or having hair or not having hair and how it's visibilized wearing that turban, that marks the distinction between life and death in these kinds of situations, right?
0: Yeah, it's so again, intractable, this relationship between black and brown communities and their hair. And, you know, a lot of this politics surrounding hair, I think, takes place within a framework that's very much mediated by white supremacy and, you know, different values surrounding hair and how they communicate, again, Mm -hmm. like you said, religion, culture, uh, class in many instances. So let's, let's talk about good hair this concept of good hair. It's the fifth anniversary of Beyonce's epic Lemonade visual and audio album. I don't know if you listened to it. Did you hear it?
1: Yes, of course, who hasn't? So
0: fifth anniversary of that album. And um, in Lemonade, Beyonce says, you know, one of her songs, she says, call Becky with the good hair. And similarly in this book, I've been reading Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. Mickey says, I don't have good hair. One of my aunts tried to solve the problem of my hair by taking me to a kitchen beautician who put a lie relaxer on my head when I was three. In a very few minutes, I was crying, bleeding, and burned in an attempt to tame my hair. Do you see any connections or intersections on these conceptions of hair or values surrounding hair? between uh, black and, and brown communities?
1: I think the history of black hair is uh, extremely racialized and has a very, very complicated kind of history. And hair, as you just mentioned, has been at the center of raging debates amongst black feminists as well. So, of to just talk about sort of the localized politics of hair in South Asia. Hair practices, as, as we've spoken about, are varyingly kind of codified in religion. So in Christianity and Buddhism, tonsuring the hair is a sign of renunciation. In Sikhism, hair is a sign of spirituality. In Islam, concealing the hair is a sign of modesty. Within Hinduism, hair is embedded in various conceptions of purity and pollution. So the symbolism of hair removal is an act of purification that informs the tonsuring at temples. But oppressive Brahmanical norms also dictate that women have to shave their hair once they are widowed. Barbers have uh, historically been associated with a low caste status within India while thick, long hair for women has been associated with caste privilege. So that's within South Asia. But again, as the the history of good hair and black hair, and as these debates go in, especially in the Northern Atlantic, uh, and the stigmatization of black women's hair as unprofessional, quote unquote, or as, you know, unruly, would indicate that hair has deeply political resonances for brown and black communities. In the context of black hair styling, again, there has been um, several debates uh, across the spectrum on what the styling of hair or the use of weaves, what that really represents for, for black women. So, you know, on the one hand, there are scholars who view the styling of black hair through weaves or through straightening and chemically altering the texture as forms of internalized and generational cultural violence because it kind of devalues the natural hair of black women, and attempts to conform to standards of Eurocentric whiteness and Eurocentric beauties. But on the other hand, there are also Black feminist scholars who critique this reasoning as totalizing and as constructing an essentialist discourse of authentic Blackness itself. So it's in this context that Dosikund, who's a professor at LSE, uh, she writes about the use of hair weaves amongst class-privileged women in Nigeria as, quote, a technology of Black post-feminist femininity, as one amongst a multitude of ways of doing or performing Black femininity, albeit an unhappy one, to use Sarah Ahmed's conceptualization, and one that is driven by post-feminist consumerist desires. So in my work, I actually draw on some of these debates and some of this work to explore what the values attached to hair are for the young women that I worked with, who are not necessarily class-privileged women, and for whom travel to India is perhaps the first time that they've left their hometowns, and whom for the very idea of india was uh, or the idea of india was synonymous with indian hair and indian hair was synonymous with a luxury commodity so these women often spoke about indian hair as being good and i was specifically interested in the value valuing practices through which indian hair became good indian hair and how within the hair industry and within the commodification of hair notions of racialized and cultural difference are rendered a value proposition. My key finding was that the valuation of Indian hair by these women was along several registers that add texture to prevailing debates about black hair styling. So for several of my interlocutors, you know, there was this idea of good Indian hair, quote unquote, and this good Indian hair was crucial to their mobility, to the materialization of India as a migratory uh, destination, Trade in this good Indian hair conjured promises of economic wealth and riches. This good Indian hair with its supposed materiality of softness made them feel good. The desire and consumption of good Indian hair satisfied aspirations for social mobility and endeavors of moral and licit work. And good Indian hair also kind of mediated relations of fashion, aesthetics and bodily capital. The use of hairbeefs is certainly and painfully implicated in racialized histories of beauty and aesthetics. But perhaps this entanglement does not preclude the range of other desires and other values that are manifested in the trade and consumption of this good Indian hair. Now, of course, we could get into a discussion of what this good Indian hair really means. And in my work, I make another argument about uh, how this entire concept of Indian hair as good is a particular kind of construct in the hair trade, where it is again notions of racialized and cultural difference that are being capitalized upon. So, for instance, in in development discourse, the country of India stands coterminous with images of poverty and of deprivation. But, in the making of hair into a commodity, India is invoked as an optic frame to reference beauty and desirability. So, this valuing of good Indian hair is positioned on material and discursive detachment, where not only do tresses have to be physically separated from Indian bodies, but also the commodification of it hinges upon the disconnect with the everyday realities of India through this valuing of good Indian hair, we see how the very idea of India is being reworked uh, in these commodification processes. The India that emerges in this ideation is a very, very specific construct, which feels claims to rusticity on the one hand, because hair is described in these marketing campaigns as virgin, as simple, as coming from these simple, you know, authentic villages of India or from the spiritual practices of Hinduism. So it's described in all these celebratory ways. But... India is also marketed as hyper-modern because Indian hair is a luxury commodity and is thus a hyper-modern commodity. But to kind of come back to my uh, original point that I was trying to make in terms of what my interlocutors thought about, um, uh, about these raging debates on on black hair styling, um, I have to say that none of the women that I spoke to voiced a dilemma about whether or not they should be using hair weaves or if this practice um, delegitimized their claims to blackness. Now, I don't mean to imply that this is a question of choice. Choice is very much a socially constructed category. But perhaps this perspective or um, is important to go beyond the dichotomies ascribed to black hair and to locate the use of hair weaves, and particularly weaves branded as Indian, regardless of whether or not they were actually sourced from India, but, but they were branded as Indian. So the use of these hair weaves is uh, indicative of flexible and negotiated self-making for these women as a way in which beauty and aesthetic itself are being conceptualized and mobilized as a form of capital. Now, these women are actors who are often located on the fringes of larger capitalist transformations ongoing in Nigeria, marked by political and economic liberalization and an expansion in Western-type consumerism. And perhaps we have to look, take into account the fact that their class position, their gendered position, uh, makes them negotiate a different relationship to consumption. Now, access to luxury commodities such as Indian hair is then perhaps the means through which to negotiate social exclusion in Nigeria through market pa- participation and new projects of self-making through mobility and migration.
0: That was so insightful. I love this idea of hair and self-making because, you know, the, again, the politics of hair or hair as a political uh, subject is... is especially for Black women, often presented as inherently negative, you know, an unhappy object um, and a site of contestation and, like you said, an, a, a sort of symbol of internalized depression, or, um, you know, many Black feminists speak about this desire to have straighter, more manageable hair as a bid to increase one's proximity to whiteness. So your research has actually brought to the fore this idea that it can be you know, reimagined or in many ways reappropriated uh, by black and brown women. I also appreciated what you said in terms of the similarities between values and religious perspectives of, of hair between black and brown women, because, you know, so I, I'm from a Swatini and in Swaziland, women are expected to shave their hair when their husbands die uh, as well. Uh, And in fact, when the king dies, we're expected to cut our hair. So there is certainly that relationship between sort of hair and uh, what I would call this performance of of mourning or this performance of, of cultural loyalty. So you spoke a little about entrepreneurs, you know, from West Africa who were your interlocutors, who traveled from, from Africa to India, Delhi specifically, as part of the hair trade. Can you speak a bit about how they were treated? Did you learn anything about their you know, social and political experiences in India? Were there any social or what were the social and political dynamics surrounding their stay? Yeah,
1: a lot of migrants are coming to India today uh, as transnational traders uh, and with aspirations of doing business not just in the hair trade, but also other kinds of industries uh, such as clothes and garments and electronics. Now, the dynamics of their stay in India is is a question with long answers, and I'm afraid that we could be here all day, and I would uh, recommend my thesis, you know, just to plug that in there. (laughs) But to try and answer that. um, In my work, I've looked at these mobility trends in relation to changing circuits, uh, changing neoliberal circuits of mobility and of capital the context of rapid urban change and transformation in Delhi, um, the violence of law and bureaucracy and immigration bureaucracy in in, in the context of India, as well as the dynamics of race and racialization, which is not something that is really looked into in India. You know, India has this kind of peculiar um, relationship to race and racism, whereby we only think of racism as something that happens to us, but we don't think of the us as also very much embedded in these racial hierarchies. So against this background, I think I I would say that there is a certain pervasive sense of uncertainty that permeates the everyday lives of Nigerian migrants, particularly and African migrants more broadly in Delhi, positioned as it is at the intersection of economic opportunity, and social friction. So the migrants that I worked with positioned themselves as entrepreneurial subjects. Their aspirations were unconstrained by any limitations of monetary capital. Uh, They were invested in the exploration of new opportunities, taking risks, engaging in gambles, even if the outcome was far from certain. As far as the possibilities for uh, entrepreneurial self-becoming were concerned, these migrants regarded India as a place bustling with prospect. Anti-black racism, however, that in the context of India has necessarily to be approached and analysed in its intersection with localised and entrenched hierarchies of caste, of religion, of ethnicity. All of this together had a substantial impact upon lived experiences of migrants. Now these dynamics are very crucial to keep in mind because they prompt us to critically reassess the supposed optimism of Africa-India solidarity you know, the promises that were made during the Bandung Conference and the non aligned movement of the 1950s and the 1960s. India's current rhetoric of uh, equal partnership with Africa is belied by the ways in which racialized configurations continue to temper Africanness in the Indian imagination. At the same time, through my research, I've also documented stories of hope and resilience, of love and romance, of collaboration and friendship unfolding in unconventional spaces and among unlikely people that characterize the myriad kind of urbanisms that are emerging in Delhi today. Together, I would say that if these conflicts and convergences necessitate an understanding beyond the decolonization movement, they also augur the future of South-South connections in the 21st century.
0: So incredible that prospect of you know, friendship and love and, and, and how the South-South globalization really Um, has the opportunities or presents an opportunity for that sort of anti-Black racism to be, perhaps not overcome, but certainly for people to develop very real relationships between countries that actually do have a very long history of solidarity, of migration, um, certainly a very long political um, history. At the risk of dating our podcast, I think we can't we can't talk about India today, you know, it's April 28th uh, and not mention the COVID uh, pandemic and, and the very real and serious implications of COVID in, in India as we speak. So the BBC published a, a an article I think yesterday saying. India has confirmed more than 17 million infections and 200,000 deaths. You know, there is obviously huge implications for for people in India so Indian citizens but also certainly for people like your interlocutors people who travel to India frequently who do business in and with India have you had any exposure to that or 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 thoughts at all about the implications of that intersection between you know south south globalization and the impact of covid especially for places like India and, and South Africa which are you know both part of BRICS but also arguably you know, the the most hard hit. So South Africa is still on the red list for the UK. and, And of course, India has just been added, I think, last week. Any, any thoughts or reflections on that?
1: This is a very, very sobering time for us, uh, especially in India and South Africa and Brazil and in, in many parts of the global south. And it's it's kind of surreal in a way to think about our lives here right now and what is unfolding there. And it's like I'm living in two different temporalities, you know. But having said that, COVID and the lockdowns that have followed since last year They've had a devastating impact on people. They have exacerbated already existing hierarchies and structural inequalities in society, um, and it has had an impact on um, on all aspects of the economy, on medical facilities, and really on the social fabric of society and of the country. Uh, now, in context of the of the sudden and harsh nationwide lockdown that was imposed last year, where People had less than four hours to prepare for for weeks uh, of stay-at-home orders. And this was at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when when things were not that bad. Uh, I mean, especially when you compare it to what is happening right now. So that lockdown that was imposed was was so strict and harsh, and basically it gave people no time to prepare for it at all. And just that I the fact that people had no time to prepare. It affected different people in different kinds of ways. So, for instance, for several of my interlocutors, you know, some of whom uh, have a precarious legal status in India, some of whom are dependent upon informal banking systems and informal value transfer system. I mean, the lockdown severely disrupted these channels by immobilizing bodies as well as capital. And left people strapped for cash in the middle of a pandemic. Again, last year, while both the centre and the state governments announced relief packages for the most vulnerable sections of society, including for a number of the domestic migrants um, uh, in India, non-citizen migrants kind of fell through the cracks as they were not eligible for any kinds of uh, for any of this kind of support. So. Covid and its aftermath of restrictions, of um, disruptions and the risks, uh, the medical risks, as also the, the greater kind of societal risk that it has posed. It has really specific challenges for, for African migrants in India, especially those with an insecure legal status who were not only locked down, but were also locked in, you know, far away from any semblance of
0: what they might identify as home absolutely agree with that concept that it's you know a a sobering time and one is really split between these two spaces you know that are home so on one hand oxford and certainly for me on the other hand south africa and and eswatini i don't want to end on that sobering note though um i have sincerely enjoyed this conversation and really bunny what timely necessary and rich research that you've done and and continue to do so thank you so much for sharing that and for your time to close uh perhaps a final reflection on the futurity of good hair Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of this discussion uh, that is hair whatever race it's wearer in its most natural state however it presents from the scalp what collective mobilization of solidarity of shared struggle Mm and perhaps more vitally of empowerment can be found in the politics of hair between black and brown women, specifically um, in Global South countries.
1: Hmm. I would say that hair, its economics, its aesthetics, the materiality of it, the various social cultural dynamics it's it's kind of embedded in, that also facilitates sociality among very differently placed urban actors or just actors uh, within the Global South. Now, for instance, uh, in the hair salons run by African women in, in Delhi, There were also Indian women coming in, right, to experiment with new aesthetics, new styles, new ways of being. And in these hair salons, women forged bonds of intimacy and of friendship. So these were very rich spaces with very diverse kinds of interactions that were ongoing. In my current postdoctoral project also, I'm looking at, you know, through the framework of this idea of emergent urbanisms, I'm looking at how African migrants shape, transform and curate urban space in Delhi. So here again these hair salons in their built forms are a way that African women are claiming their space and are claiming their presence in Delhi as a way of city making and place making within the city so to speak. Now at a more macro level, the stigmatization of natural hair for black women and debates around the hijab ongoing in several contexts, all of these speak to the ways in which black and brown women and their bodies have long been policed and disciplined and how the gendered politics of hair intersects with race, with religion, with caste, ethnicity, and with the negotiation, performance, and contestation of culture and identity more broadly. So perhaps it is from these collective sites of struggle that we can together develop languages of empathy and solidarity across the spectrum.
0: Such hopeful and promising last words, Bunny. Thank you so much. So I know that those who are listening to the podcast won't be able to see us, but I think we have to end this perhaps a second time um, with just an observation that i've made about our hair today so mine is sort of in a very western styled bun and updo Uh, here i am black african as i am and mine is in a, a sort of cascading bun and yours you know is braided in a very typical sort of african plate so so much you know so much there about you know solidarity about self making about community and what a wonderful thing it is that conversations like these research like this and and certainly you know politics of this nature can exist in such rich and substantive ways between the countries of the global south without really very much mediation of the west so i think it's really empowering what you've said about reframing the politics of hair instead of as something that takes place under a white gaze, something that is very much a relationship and a conversation between uh, two developing countries of the global South. Thank you so much, Bunny. I'm sure we're going to speak more offline, but that brings us to the end of the podcast for today.
1: Thank you so much, Simpewe. I really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to more kinds of interactions.